Hi, I'm Marilyn Dennis, and this is Marilyn Dennis Does a Podcast. My guest today is 80s icon, Andrew McCarthy. Can you imagine Pretty in Pink without Andrew McCarthy? I don't think so, but it almost happened. And oh, by the way, don't even mention the Brat Pack because he doesn't like that name until now. That's why he wrote the book, Brat, an 80s story. So if you're into the 80s and you like the movies, Class, St. Elmo's Fire, Weekend at Bernie's, you're going to love my chat with Andrew McCarthy. How are you doing? Really good. Uh, Before we get started on this book, um, it's really great to meet you. I hope I do everybody uh, justice that are huge Andrew McCarthy fans, because when we were talking about having you on the show, they were like, yes, we want to talk to him. But before we talk about this book, let's talk about how how are things, you know, in New York? How's the family with the lockdown? Do you see a light at the end of the tunnel? Well, hopefully uh, we are getting a light at the end of the tunnel. It starts to feel, you know, a little different. At least spring is sprung, so that's great. Um, my family, luckily, yeah. everyone is all good and fine. And uh, I had uh, the COVID uh, a long time ago, right at the beginning of the pandemic. So uh, that's behind me, luckily. And, uh, no, you know, things are looking up, aren't they? They really are. Well, we're still locked down in Canada, but we, uh, we're making our way to get to uh, be- better uh, statistics, that's for sure. So congratulations on Brat and 80 Story. You say in the acknowledgments that it was almost written 30 years ago. You want to explain that to everybody? Well, I mean, I think um, it's such a sort of iconic term and it became so quickly a part of the zeitgeist and people were always been so strangely in many ways interested uh, in it. And people have asked me over the years, would you be interested in writing a book about the Brat Pack? And my answer was always very quickly, nope. <laughs> and then a couple of years ago, someone said, would you be interested in writing a book? And I went, huh. Which surprised me, my reaction. You know, I think I've finally gotten enough distance from it and became grown up enough to finally look at it and what uh, what happened and what it meant, you know, because it was such a crazy sort of wondrous time. And it had such a large effect on who I was to become that I just kind of fled from it in many ways. And so to finally go back and look at it was a real, um, it turned out to be quite a liberating thing and quite um, an exciting thing to do, which I was surprised by. I thought it would just be kind of a musty old, who cares? And then as I read, I started writing, it sort of came alive to me in a way and made, it started to make sense to me, the appeal of it all. Whereas at the time I often didn't understand the appeal of any of these movies. Right. You're so young. You're in it. And, and when we, we get to look back on some things, we go, okay, uh, okay, that's what happened. Or that's kind of endearing. Or is that how you felt as well? Yeah. I mean, like you say, you, when you're living it, you're just in the middle of it. And you're kind of like, what's going on? <laughs> and when you're 22, you know, you think you know everything. And of course, you know not so much. Um, so I was just reacting to events that were coming at me in a certain way. And to actually kind of step back and look at it and see what it all added up to was, and why, why did it, why are people still interested all these years later in the Brat Pack and those movies and all, and, you know, even the term itself has become this wonderfully iconic, affectionate term. And it didn't start that way. You know, it started as this very sort of pejorative term that was leveled against a group of seemingly entitled kind of actors. And so, I certainly, and I know some of the other guys fled from that and wanted as much distance as possible, you know. But over time, you know, to the public, that term means this 
sort of look back at our youth through rose-colored glasses, you know, at that time when you're 20 years old and the world is just starting for you and your life is an empty slate to be written on. And there's no more exciting time in life than that age, you know, and I've sort of come to be the avatar of that for many people. You know, I represent that moment in their youth and they look back on it. And so consequently they project onto me this wonderful affection and it's really affection for their own youth in a certain way. And I'm, I mean, I'm thrilled to sort of represent that to them. Yeah, and, and you know, with, with this lockdown, uh, we were talking about to do a radio show here in Toronto as well. And it's about people uh, seeing reboots happen all the time because that's the comfort zone. That is going back in time when things were not locked down and returning to your youth. I'm sure you see it all the time working in television as you do behind the scenes and in front of the camera. I'm sure you see it all the time hearing about projects that are being rebooted again. Go, really? They're doing that again? Yeah, I mean, and you, and you go, why, why would you redo that? But I think it's exactly what you say. I mean, it's familiar and it's comforting. And, it, you know, we do so much of the work for it. When we, we project our own affections and feelings onto these people and, and shows that we want to see them again and have them keep living for us in a certain way. And, you know, we have relationships with these things. It's like my grandmother used to, when she used to babysit me, she used to watch the TV with me. And when Peter Falk would come on, she'd go, oh, hello, Peter. And she'd talk to the TV, you know, and she had this relationship with these people. And people have these relationships, you know, one-sided, but with me. And then they see me and they think they behave as if they know me. And I'm like, hi, I, I don't know you. <laughs> right, right. I could just see your grandmother saying, hello, Columbo. She must have been a big fan of Columbo. Am I right? Yes, she loved Columbo. And then I uh, loved Columbo as well. Years after that, I actually got to do a movie with Peter Falk. And I did it for one day, a one-day role. And I did it solely so I could act with Peter Falk. And I had to tell him, I, I said, I am here because of my grandmother. She loved you, and I'm here to tell you. <laughs> How was his response to that? Because that must have been he awesome for you. It. He loved it. He thought that was just the greatest thing. <laughs> That's so great. I love to hear stories like that. That makes me feel good because actors are fans of other actors all ages. We look up to them and we're like, wow, that's pretty amazing. We feel like that in the world of broadcasting. Let's talk about your first role as an actor. Your very first role in the musical Oliver, The Artful Dodger. There's two great roles in that, in, in my estimation. It's The Artful Dodger and Fagin. You got to play Artful Dodger. You love that so much. I did. I did. That changed my life. You know, I was just a 15 year old kid who had no direction, no nothing. I was just wandering around, uh, drifting through as a terrible student and all that. And I walked out on stage as the Artful Dodger and it was like a light went off in my life. The room that had been in the dark was suddenly lit. And I was, my life was changed. I knew in that instant, that's what I'm going to do. And I knew it was super important to me because I told nobody, you know, it was so important. It was like, this is mine, and I'm not letting anyone get in and mess this up. But, yeah, my life, and I'm very lucky because my life, I mean, I was lucky to be young enough to not know that it was absolutely impossible and could never happen. I just believed that's what I'm going to do, and that's what I went and did. Did you do that uh, at Moving Forward about uh, when, you, when you got a part? Were you quiet about it? Uh, just so that no one would, or audition when you're auditioning, and we're going to talk about some of the things you auditioned for. But did you did you maintain that? Because I can't remember if you did that or not. Just so no one would run interference. I never tell anyone uh, anything until after I'm. You know, there's that line. You never have to ask an actor if they have a job; they'll always tell you. And uh, I never would tell people when I auditioned or was up for something or something ever. I still don't, and and I still don't tell people when I'm actually doing a job unless they 
you know, I, I just always try to keep it close and because it feels kind of frail and you don't want it, people going, oh, <laughs> you know, that if you did that to me, if you just right, went, oh, right. I would, I would, it would alter my feeling about it. And I don't want anyone messing with that. Right, right. I get you. I get you. Let's talk about class with Jack, uh, Jacqueline Bissett, as you explained in the book, Bissett, like Kiss It and Rob Lowe. Tell us about the audition. Well, that was kind of a crazy time. I'd just been kicked out of college and I had nothing to do. And a friend of mine called me and said, you know, there's an ad in the newspaper here. It says they're looking for someone 18, vulnerable and sensitive to be the lead in the movie. And I was like, that's me. And so I went up to the audition place uh, and there were 500 other 18, vulnerable and sensitive kids sitting there. And I went in and met a casting director for two minutes and they said, come back tomorrow. And I was like, really? <laughs> yeah. And anyway, I did about 10 auditions later. And then finally, uh, the part was mine. And I was to play Jacqueline Bissett's young lover in the, in the movie. And so I had to fly out to LA and meet Jacqueline and get approved by her. And it was a very heady, wondrous, kind of confusing time. And then when we finished the film, Jacqueline said, uh, what are you doing after the film, Andrew? And I said, well, I, I've got to go to LA and get an agent. You know, because it was the first, I knew nothing. I had no connections in show business. And she said, well, where are you staying? I said, I, I, I don't know. And she goes, well, you'll stay with me. I was like, okay. And so I lived at Jacqueline Business House for weeks. And she was wonderful to me. She used to drive me to my early auditions in her Cadillac convertible. And it was just kind of crazy. I'd be in a meeting with people and they'd say, Andrew, how are you navigating the city? And I'm like, oh, fine. Jackie's outside in her, in her Cadillac waiting for me, you know. <laughs> Uh, uh, every man's dream, Andrew, every man's yeah. dream. Oh my gosh. What a stunning woman. Uh, she's amazing. Hey, I want to talk to you a little bit about after that was done, you had to reshoot something for the, the end of that movie. Am I right? Yeah, I'm pretty pink. We had to reshoot, uh, the ending. It was originally, um, the movie ended with the people going to the prom and then Ma and I stood, I was supposed to go with Molly and I stood her character up and they did a test screening of that and the audience hated that. They wanted us to be together. So yeah. we reached the ending of the film where I end up going with Molly and apologizing to her and stuff. And, but I was doing a play in New York at the time and I had a shaved head. So they had to get me a terrible wig. And so they gave me this sort of horrible little piece of fur they stuck on top of my head. And it was, uh, it actually did a lot of the work for me because I looked so forlorn and sad and kind of, ill with the wig on it just made me look so heartbroken and sad so really i did a lot of wig acting in that and um but it worked very well and the audience uh loved the new ending and right then the rest yeah. is history as they say yeah that's great i mean listen we own now we know this year is the 35th anniversary of pretty in pink and that by the way for people that don't know it's a role you almost didn't get no molly got me that role yeah um i was I auditioned and it was supposed to be sort of a square jawed, you know, football hunk, star quarterback type. And I did not fit that bill. And I went into an audition and John Hughes kind of went, hello, couldn't have cared less. I read my scene once and Molly was there reading with people and which was rare. Usually the actors aren't there, but Molly was there and she read with me and I walked out of the room and apparently she turned to John Hughes and said, that's the guy. And John was like, that would be guy. Are you kidding me? She goes, no, 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 he's poetic and dreamy. He's the guy. And to John, to his credit, you know, which is what John always did, was give young people sort of credit for yeah. being more than just punks. And he cast me just solely on Molly's advice. Yeah, he did say that wimpy guy, that wimpy guy. 
<laughs> but I mean, I was, I was just, I was this little frail kind of young kid, you know, and it was written as more of this kind of, you know, square jawed kind of dude, you know, and that just wasn't yeah. how I yeah. was. And so, yeah. but you know, that's John's credit. Cause I mean, that's what those movies did was they gave young people credit for having full rich emotional yeah. lives, whereas movies hadn't really before that. And that's why they're so, why they have such staying power, I think, you know. For sure, for sure. Hey, I want to talk to you about any time we 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 are Canada, uh, Canada proud, and I'm looking through your reading your, through your book, and I see this great picture. I know this woman as soon as I see her. It's the great Amanda Plummer. Great Amanda Plummer. Mm-hmm. There you two are. This is a mm-hmm. great story. And a little bit, a little bit of Toronto in there. And what what I loved what you said was, um, uh, you know, we had plays. We, we were we'll we'll set that up because you had to come and reshoot another. Uh, a scene with Rob Lowe, which I want to talk about. Uh, but we had been placed in the same hotel, not as likely as uh, as it might sound. Toronto in those days was still a small town, and everyone in the film industry stayed at the Sutton Place. Yes, they did. You're absolutely yeah. right. That <laughs> that's that is where all my interviews were done. Every time, yeah, like, yeah. the people that would come through there, right? Everyone's. I mean, I was just up in Toronto. Uh, right before the pandemic for about, I love Toronto. I've shot there a lot and I was up there for six months doing a show. Uh, and it's changed. Toronto has changed so much and grown up so much. But back then, Huge. yeah, everyone came to Sutton Place and that's just the way it was, you know? And it was kind of cool because you, you'd yeah. see everyone walk through the lobby and it was, you know, it was yeah. fun. So true. And there was a little restaurant across the way that was, that, that, that's when everybody would have lunch there, especially during the film festival. And stars yeah. would walk by and you're like, what? This, you know what? Ready? Condo, condo, Andrew. Condo, condo, as you well know. Yeah. <laughs> that's for sure. I want to talk about, though, the fact that you had to come and reshoot with uh, Rob. He was working on a movie. You saw Amanda on the plane. Take it from there. Yeah, I had actually, the story back to even further, I uh, met Amanda was this wonderful guy, and I'd seen her on Broadway in the in show, so I was quite sort of infatuated with her sort of talent. And I had actually come up to her outside the Broadway show, and I said, "Hi, can I, you were so great. Do you want to have coffee with me?" And she's like, "No." And then I ended up a couple cut to a couple years later. I'm on the plane next to her, and again I said, "You're so great. And I'm going to Canada to do this movie. You want to have coffee with me?" And she's like. Maybe, you know. So anyway, I was yeah doing a reshoot of uh, the first movie I did called Class, the one with Jacqueline Bissett, where we right. reshot a scene right. up there uh, with Rob, who was doing I believe the Hotel New Hampshire up there at the time. Right. And, uh, but the scene actually never even made it in the movie. It was weird that we reshot it and then they kind of went, nah, it was better off before. So the the interesting thing about this, and and you you do mention in the book that you you uh, uh, showed up the next day to shoot the scene, and you and Amanda had been out late that night and uh, not quite focused. Uh, you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I just showed up hungover. You know, I had uh, parallel to my uh, my acting life in the eighties, and that success was I would I had a drinking issue, and. Uh, which had nothing to do with my sort of success in movies. I just drank, you know, and uh, yeah. being in the movies allowed me to drink better vodka, but it was, uh, so I just showed up hungover for the first time at work. And it was quite a traumatic thing. It's like, I was for the first time I was unprepared to go to work and it was, yeah, I look back on that with some deep <laughs> chagrin. Yeah. It was just about opening up a door. I, I felt you on this, if opening yeah, up the I door and just saying one line. 
The scene was I had to walk in. I had to, all I had to do is open the door, say one line, and then walk off camera and look. The whole time, the director wanted me to keep looking up the whole time, and I couldn't do it because I felt so sort of embarrassed and ashamed that I was hungover that I, every time I would be walking off, I would just look down. And the director said, do it again. Don't look down. So I tried, and I just felt so ashamed. And anyway, it, I must have done We did 50 takes, and I never was able to do it. So finally, the director just said, stop, stop, stop. I can't take it anymore. And I'm like, I can't take it anymore either. Please stop. <laughs> You'd think I would have learned my lesson and not drunk again, but no, it was just the beginning, I'm afraid. Yeah. <laughs> that took a while. Well, you know, I know in the, you know, throughout the book, you tell stories, you talk about sobriety, you talk about friendships, and, and, and also you talk about, you know, not only the roles that you played, but into directing. Uh, what drew you to go behind the camera? Yeah, it was a sort of a natural evolution for me to, um, there was a lot about acting that I found, you know, the attention and all I, I found sort of didn't suit my personality type. So, and I'd worked with so many directors that I, I started directing television shows. One, I started directing when I was on, and then I just started directing more television shows and found I had a, an aptitude for it. And a, uh, I liked doing it. I liked the position on the set. I liked not being out in front like that and yet having a sort of singular position. Right. Uh, and so I, I, I really found a home doing that. Well, I'll tell you, you've done so, there's so many great stories in here, Andrew. It's so good. And also, just in case anybody knows, he's an award-winning travel writer, too. But we have run out of time with Andrew McCarthy. The book is called Brat, an 80s Story. Such a pleasure to, to meet with you and talk with you. And congratulations on the book. And uh, hope, hopefully you'll be back up in Toronto shooting up here or somewhere in Canada. It was really nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Thanks for having me. Oh, yes. And by the way, if you want to see Andrew McCarthy in action, he's directing and acting in the crime comedy drama series, Good Girls. He's such a great storyteller. The book is Brad, an 80s story, and it's available now. Marilyn Dennis does a podcast. New episodes every week. You can download or subscribe on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.